Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Ben here. Just a warning. We talk about suicide in this episode. Please take care as you listen. Pam was riding a wave. Audiences were packing theaters to see coffee. Fans recognized her on the street. And she often found herself surrounded by some of the most famous people in the world. Like the night she ended up in an L.A. music club called The Troubadour. Walking in with John Lennon and Harry Nielsen and all the bigwigs are behind me. And here's this sister, you know, red beans and rice don't miss her. With all these white men walking into this club. And of course, heads turn. They were there to see the comedy duo, the Smothers Brothers. Pam and John Lennon had never met before. He started asking her questions while they waited for the Smothers Brothers to take the stage. Oh, Lord, are they? Are there black people in the world? Yes, in the West. Wow, wow. In the wild, wild West. Hmm. <laughs> while Pam explained black cowboys to John, the energy in the club shifted. The whole audience was waiting for them. Overly long amount of time, people were getting, becoming impatient. And John said, Pam, yes, yes, John. Uh, I, I love American music and I love the gospel. And there's certain songs that just stick with me. And I heard this song called something about rain on my window pane. And I go, oh, um, I think I know that uh, song. It's by Ann Peebles. And I said, I can't stand the rain on my window. Brings back those memories. He said, that's it, that's it. He started jumping up and down. I said, shush, let me finish, okay? I can't stand the rain. So as I'm beating and singing, he joins in and he performs a harmony with me. And we kept singing and singing and the audience turned around and they saw us singing and harmonizing and they were like, (gasps) and they started singing along with us. They knew the chorus and he kept egging them on. Come on, one more time. Ladies and gentlemen, meet the Smothers Brothers. And so the Smothers Brothers came out to their stage and people were still wanting a concert from John. They had had a few drinks. They were ready to see John Lennon. And the sister singing with him. The Smothers Brothers started their act. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Thank show. you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a Or tried to. John had done coke that night, and he was drunk. I got drunk and shouted. Uh, it was the first night I drank Brandy Alexander's, which is brandy and milk, folks. And I was with Harry Neal. And John, I was like, oh. He turned to me and he said, Bam, let's continue. No, 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 no. And so he said, come on, come on. So he started banging on the table the song. The Smothers Brothers manager came over and asked John to quiet down. It went poorly. That manager of the Smothers Brothers grabbed his collar 
pulled John over the table. We tried to hang onto his legs. It was on. It was the biggest whiteboard brawl you ever seen at the Troubadour with me right there in the middle of it. The next morning, news of what happened at the Troubadour was everywhere. John Lennon sent Pam flowers to apologize. It was one of those wild nights that could only happen in Hollywood. And during the 1970s, Pam Greer would have a lot of those nights. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. This is Episode 5, Looking Good. In April 1974, Pam was 24 years old and on the road promoting coffee. She was in Chicago in the green room for a talk show called the Irv Cupsonet Show. From Chicago, Cup Show with Irv Cupsonet. Millions of people watched Irv's show. Pam was booked alongside a promising new talent, comedian Freddie Prinze. Freddie Prinze. He walked into the green room. That's when I saw this young man who was very mature, but once he walked into the room, he was like a bright light. Freddie was only 19, but he'd already made a name for himself doing stand-up at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. The club had only been open two years, but it helped change stand-up comedy. In the 1970s, comics became cool, almost like pop stars. David Letterman did stand-up at the club when he was 28. This is from a Showtime documentary on the Comedy Store. Last week in the Enquirer, a big story. How to lose weight without diet or exercise. Pretty much leaves disease, doesn't it? Jimmy J.J. Walker performed there before going on to sitcom stardom in good times. Had a cat outside the club, woke up and said, Jim, I only got $3 to my name. What should I do? I said, change your name. And Freddie Prinze was a regular on the stage. Yeah, New York was serious. I had a yellow Plymouth once. I stopped for a red light, a guy jumped in. What you mean you ain't a cab, sucker? Well, don't be stopping at the traffic light then. That's where all the new comedians would go to work. And after they had the real shows late, after it would kind of close, everyone would help each other get their stand-up after hours. Freddie was raised in Washington Heights, a neighborhood in Upper Manhattan. He started doing stand-up at 18 and eventually moved to Hollywood. Other things that give people a wrong impression of Puerto Ricans are like movies, like West Side Story set us back 100 years. Because if you saw the movie, it made people think that all we did was stand in streets going... Tonight! Tonight! It didn't take Freddie long to get the big break every comic wanted. A slot on The Tonight Show. I come from two backgrounds, Hungarian and Puerto Rican. But yeah, I'm a Hungarian. Before the Irv Cupsonet interview, Pam and Freddie chatted in the green room. He was charming. He had dimples and shaggy hair. 
He was so well-dressed, and he just had on a shirt and slacks and his hair and his skin. It was just, he was ready to go on this show. Freddie told Pam he'd seen Black Mama, White Mama, and Coffee. He liked them both. When Irv began the interview, Pam watched Freddie. The syndrome out there is to uh, mold you. And he's brilliant. And he's observing everything and everybody just making you laugh at yourself. And I said, he's got it, and he's going to be in demand. And Irv was trying to be this matchmaker, you know, for us. And I'm like, why? He said, well, he's a cute kid. I said, that's the wrong thing to say. I'm not into kids, okay? Pam was five years older than Freddie, but that didn't intimidate him. He had given me his number on a napkin. First time on the date, we went to Greenblatt's. It was a deli. He loved deli food. Freddie invited Pam back to his one-bedroom apartment in downtown L.A. And he said, I want you to meet my friend Jay. And we, we go up the, the stairs, and Jay's on the sofa sleeping. That's where he sleeps. That's right. Yeah. You came in, and I was, I was sleeping on his couch at the time. Right. And he raised That's Jay Leno. In 1974, he was 24 years old and had just moved to L.A. He was doing stand-up at the comedy store, too. This guy said that the average male has 10,000 orgasms in his lifetime. Called my doctor Thursday. I have nine left. <laughs> Jay was crashing at Freddie's place. And so Jay was in a blanket. He says, Jay, Jay, I want you to meet Pam, Pam Greer. And Jay's sleeping. He, he sticks his toe out for me to shake. And I, I shook his big toe. And that was, that was Jay. Pam and Freddie talked for hours that night. That was it. But then I didn't see him again for a while until I came back into town. Did you kiss or anything? Or? No. Mm-mm. We didn't. We didn't eat onions. <laughs> when Pam and Freddie found time together, they took long drives in her used Corvette. Quickly, they became close. They were young and famous and starting to make real money. It was overwhelming, and they leaned on each other. We called each other Mommy and Papi. And he said, Mommy. I always knew it's him. Fredito, my Fredito. My little Freddy. In August 1974, Pam headed to Louisville, Kentucky to shoot another movie for American International Pictures, AIP. This one was called Sheba Baby. Pam Greer, that foxy brown coffee gal, is Sheba Baby. It was a 30-day shoot. Pam was up at 4 each morning to go over the script. She worked 16-hour days. Her character was a private detective named Sheba Shane. Before I turn you in, you tell me about your operation. And you better tell me fast before you lose your head. Sheba Baby has still has the vengeance element of her defending her father and the people that are out to kind of ruin his business. That's film critic Odie Henderson. He saw Sheba Baby when it first came out. It was his introduction to Pam Greer. I was in love with her. (laughs) I come from a family of very, very outspoken women. I have a lot of aunties. So in a lot of ways, it reminded me that there were powerful women, not just in my life, but I got to see them on the screen. My female cousins were empowered by her. They would play Pam Greer when we play games. Now you tell your boss that he is not dealing with my father anymore. Yeah. He is dealing with Sheba Shane. You hear me? Yeah. And when I find him, I'm going to bust his ass wide open. After shooting Sheba Baby, Pam bought a house in L.A.'s Brentwood neighborhood. It's an upscale part of town. 
The house cost $180,000. Pam wanted Hollywood to take her more seriously. She even tried to change her name to Pamela Greer. She told a reporter, Pam was fine for all those action movies, but I can't spend my whole life wrestling. Pamela didn't catch on. Pam Greer was too famous now, too popular, and too locked in to a certain kind of role. When the plot thickens returns, Pam has to face up to Freddy's demons. He never did it in front of me. He never did it in front of me. Freddie was working on a new sitcom called Chico and the Man. He was the lead. It debuted on NBC in September 1974. Looking good! Looking good became Freddie's catchphrase. Chico and the Man was the first sitcom set in a Mexican-American neighborhood. The show was a hit. Freddie appeared on the cover of Tiger Beat and Rolling Stone. Plus, he was touring the country doing stand-up. My people recognize me, too. Hey, Freddie Prinze, you made it. You're making money now. Stick him up. What about Las Vegas and show business and all that? Are you going to be, like, next Lenny Bruce, I guess? I don't want people to say I'm the next Lenny Bruce. I'm the next Richard Pryor, next Bill Cosby. I want them to say Freddie Prince, the voice of the Puerto Ricans. Freddie had a hard time with sudden fame. He was doing drugs, cocaine. He repeatedly asked Pam to do coke with him. She always refused. He never did it in front of me. He never did it in front of me. I just didn't want to know because I just knew of the culture and how many musicians and people, big, big, big stars. You hear them busting and buying and, you know, just large amounts of cocaine and it's an upper. And many people need that upper, that energy to sustain not sleeping or rehearsing or playing for hours. Who am I to say anything or judge? Freddie used so much cocaine, he developed an eroded nasal septum. The cartilage and bone separating his nostrils had become worn down and thin. He saw a doctor for it, who ended up prescribing Freddie quaaludes, Valium, and Ritalin for depression and anxiety. Freddie knew he had a problem. He thought Pam could save him. He wanted me to take him home to Colorado so he could have a normal environment. He said, I'm dying to go back. I'm dying to see where you came from because you're so grounded. You're not crazy. But Pam didn't want to quit. She had two more pictures lined up after Sheba Baby. Freddie kept pushing. He wanted to get married, wanted to have a baby. He didn't want to use birth control or anything like that. And I was like, uh, no, mm-mm. And he, he kept trying to do that. And I just said, that's not cool. But he started that, you know, trying to, well, you say you want children. I said, yeah, but not now, not tomorrow, you know. And he it was like, no, that's a decision. That's a big decision. And I said, well, you haven't started your career yet. It's just barely starting. And you start want to start a family, and I'll have to give mine up to be with our children, take care of them. Pam couldn't help Freddie with his escape plan. 
She wasn't ready to get married or have kids. She tried to convince him to slow down, find different friends who weren't using drugs, but he didn't or couldn't listen. In January 1975, Pam asked Freddie to be her date to the 8th Annual NAACP Awards. I said, you should go. People are going to love you. You should go. You're my date. The night of the ceremony, Freddie showed up at Pam's house wearing a tuxedo. He'd given Pam a fur coat as a gift, and he wanted her to wear it. But Pam hated the coat. She was an animal lover. I'm not kidding. When I said, I can't wear it, no, I'm not going to try it, no, I crushed him. That coat was $299. He saved every penny. He said, you know how many shirts that was? You know how many shows it took him to be able to pay for it? And he paid cash. It wasn't on the layaway plan for Christmas. He was so proud. And sometimes when you don't accept a gift, you're not accepting that person as well. You could see it in his face. And I'm now learning. So the compromise was, I'll take it and I'll wear it over my shoulder. Yeah, and I'll wear it when we're together. But when you're not around, it's under the bed with the fur balls and the dust. Pam and Freddie dated for a year. They were often apart because of work. But somewhere along the lines, you fell in love with Freddie. I did. And you know what? I didn't tell him. You didn't tell him? Mm -mm. I liked him a lot, but I didn't tell him. Freddie started to become unpredictable, moody. He was borrowing money, frustrated. Pam decided to break up with him. There are certain things that make me feel safe that a person can show, display, exhibit. And if they don't, I feel that I'm on my own and I'm not going to let them in. I don't know how much I can love them, take care of them, what's going to happen, what children they're going to bring to this. Are they going to go to work? What drugs are they on? Are they lying to me or what? It's a lot. And I had come that way by myself with such difficulty and chance and risk. I can't let someone tear that down. Pam wanted to remain friends, but Freddie took the breakup hard. He would call me a lot and I wouldn't answer. He felt absolutely alone. Once again, Pam threw herself into work. In 1975, she was on the cover of Jet Magazine, then Ebony. Her photo was alongside Cicely Tyson, Sidney Poitier, Diana Ross, and Diane Carroll. The headline read, Have Blacks Really Made It in Hollywood? New York Magazine put her on the cover of their May issue. That headline read, Sex Goddess of the 70s. Then in the summer, Pam got a call. Another magazine, another cover offer. This magazine didn't want a sexy cover shot. They didn't even want to highlight what she was wearing. The call was from Ms. Magazine. She was clearly a, a great story and pioneer because she was, she seemed to be the first action hero, female action hero. That's Gloria Steinem. And... You know, that was a big change from women who were only present on the screen because they were the love interest of the guy who was the action hero. Gloria Steinem is arguably the most recognizable feminist in the world. She co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1971. 
It was obvious to Gloria that Pam should be in the magazine. She may have been sexualized, but she was nobody's victim. I mean, unlike the romantic female leads of the time, who at a certain point in the story were always conquered in some way, symbolically. You know, you could see there was usually a classic scene of a man kissing a slightly resistant woman, and then finally you see her hand creeping around his neck as a sign of of acquiescence and submission. I mean, she was a great relief from that. Ms. Magazine was a Bible to me to follow because it had articles, research of women who were doing things in the political arena in our society. You know, you could guide yourself by from these women who were thinking of our future, as I had as a little girl, thinking of who are the women that are going to let the world know we're equals. We can do anything a man can do. Pam was featured in the August issue, one of the first black women on the cover of Ms. Magazine. The story was by Jamaica Kincaid, a writer who later became an award-winning Caribbean novelist. Putting Pam on the cover in 1975 was also strategic. In a general way, black women were about twice as likely to support in public opinion polls what was then called the women's liberation movement, as were white women. I mean, that's a huge difference. Also, it was a difference that the popular media generally ignored. So the media treated the leadership of the civil rights movement as black male and the leadership of the feminist movement as white female. And this was not accurate on on either hand. This time, the magazine headlines celebrated Pam's position of power. It read, The Mocha Mogul of Hollywood. Gloria and her team fought to make sure the issue would be treated fairly by newsstands and advertisers. She says sometimes in the South they would segregate the magazines with a black woman on the cover, or not even sell them at all. Well, there was external resistance because we understood that we would not be put on some newsstands or we would be grouped uh, with magazines for black readers only as opposed to general interest women's magazines. We were aware of that because our newsstand distributors made us <laughs> aware of that. Uh, but, you know, you have to go against the grain in order to change the grain. In the Ms. article, Pam discussed her new company, Brown Sun Productions. She wanted to start making her own movies. She didn't see a future for black exploitation films. Well, I wasn't upset. I was grateful and enjoy them, but they were being redundant to the audience. And I'm the one that goes home to Colorado and into communities. And I will hear the same comment is that they're redundant and they're becoming boring. Pam had an interest in black women's history and she wanted to tell those stories. She started sharing her ideas with the independent studios she worked with. I pitched them and they loved them. They were saying, okay, let's get the writers. Let's get that. Well, 
Sometimes I couldn't find the riders. So I was trying to do all of that because we didn't have a lot of, you know, black riders then. And I needed to do that, but there just weren't any around. And I felt, oh my God, this is hard. Pam did get to pitch her ideas to a few major studios, but they dismissed her. I said, well, you know, they haven't believed a lot of stories. So I was used to that. I was used to, to hearing that. And I would say I'd have to make it myself. You know, we're, we're invisible. Pam's agent told her he would try to get her more mainstream roles so her ideas would be taken seriously. Maybe mainstream success would open more doors. Pam needed a change because the genre that made her famous was coming to an end. When the plot thickens returns, blaxploitation fizzles. You think Steven Spielberg's going to see coffee? No. You think Scorsese's seeing Sheba Baby? No. De Niro's seeing Sheba Baby, but Scorsese's not. Who is Friday Foster? In September 1975, Pam started working on a new movie for AIP called Friday Foster. She plays Friday, a former model turned photojournalist. Fancy, there is nothing you have that I want, and I don't hustle for nobody. Friday Foster was still considered a black exploitation film, but it had a bigger budget. It was based on the first popular comic strip with a black female lead. And Friday Foster seems almost like a cotton candy kind of movie. That's film critic Odie Henderson. And again, I think it goes back to the roots of she's a photographer and she's going to take these pictures in exotic locations. It almost becomes kind of like a glamour kind of fantasy that you didn't really get to see black people do. Friday, I want you to take your little camera and get the hell out and don't get involved. The poster for Friday Foster showed Pam with a camera around her neck and a pistol in her hand. The tagline, it was one for the ages. Wham, bam, here comes Pam. The studio brought in a cast of other established actors, Yafet Koto, Carl Weathers, Paul Benjamin, and Eartha Kitt who plays fashion designer Madame Reina. Film historian Donald Bogle says Pam looked different. They try to sort of clean up the image, and some of the rawness is gone. And that rawness was very important for the audiences who first saw her and felt indeed that they were discovering her. Friday Foster hit theaters on Christmas Day, 1975. The critics weren't kind. Here's Donald Bogle reading from Variety's review, which singles out Pam. Still, one can't blame shoddy plot elements on her, since she so far transcends the silliness of her vehicles, far more active than any other film star in the last few years. She just needs a breakthrough, major role to come into her own. I'm just going to start being redundant. Coffee, Foxy Brown, Sheba was a little lighter than both of them. And then Friday Foster, the comic book character. Now, when do I go to this mainstream? Here's director Quentin Tarantino. I find it hard to believe with all the really terrific... I'm not talking about just like 
the movie brats. But I, with all the good directors out there working in, in Hollywood in the 70s, I, I put the blame on them a little bit for not realizing what, what they had in Pam Greer and Cassie. But again, what, you know, what, you think Steven Spielberg's going to see coffee? No. You think Scorsese's seeing Sheba Baby? No, De Niro's seeing Sheba Baby, but Scorsese's not. You know, in general, I don't think that Hollywood has often known what to do with Black people, like, period. <laughs> but especially not Black actresses, and especially not Black actresses who don't fit into kind of, like, neat and conventional and simplistic categories. That's film professor Raquel Gates. But, you know, Pam Greer, for as iconic as she was in the 70s, I mean, she doesn't have the career that, like, a white male icon from the 70s had. You know, she's not like Clint Eastwood or, or Robert Redford. Like, that literally just, it's, it's not like a possibility for a black actress. Pam kept trying to find a mainstream role with a major studio. And her parts in exploitation movies were drying up. I've always seen exploitation. It was not a, a long period in a sense. And I see it basically from like 71 to about 76. And the audience just wanted something, something else. And what I think happened in 1976. Gene Wilder's problem wasn't getting on the Silver Streak. Silver Streak comes out and it's with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And we get a theme now that's going to become important in Hollywood. And it's the theme of interracial male bonding. The black man and the white man. Nothing can stop Silver Street. The exploitation era was giving way to the interracial buddy movie, many of which were made by bigger studios and often white directors. As for Pam, she was determined to keep acting, even if that meant smaller roles and minor characters. But it's to her credit that she kept working. She really did. For nearly five years, producers and directors had been creating projects just for Pam. Now, it appeared, that era was coming to an end. Freddie Prinze never stopped calling Pam. She went months without answering, but she missed him. So one day, she picked up the phone. Freddie asked Pam to go for a drive and meet a friend, a friend he worshipped. His name was Richard Pryor. He wanted to be like Richard Pryor. And he wanted to use his body to do improvisation like Richard did and wanted to have a show in Las Vegas and then make movies after Chico Man. Freddie took Bam to Richard's mansion 45 minutes outside of Hollywood. He lived in what used to be the Wrigley family estate, the bubblegum people. Freddie rang the bell on the gate and spoke into the intercom. He said, hey, let me in. I've got Foxy Brown, I've got Pam Greer in there. Richard said, oh, motherfucker, no, you don't. You know, I'll open that gate, and if you don't have Pam Greer in that car, I'm going to shoot you in the ass right now. That's what he told Freddie. And they laughed, and I'm like, this ain't funny. Richard Pryor came out of the house in a bathrobe with a gun in his pocket. Pam noticed everything. Richard only noticed Pam. And he comes over and he's like, hey, you really are Foxy Brown. He said, and, and, and coffee, and coffee can cream it. He's like going through all the dialogue. <laughs> he said, why don't you get out? I said, no, we got to go. I just came up with him to come here. Freddie went into the house with Richard. When he came out, he had a vial of liquid cocaine. Freddie revved the engine and headed down the driveway. Pam never got out of the car. Richard wanted you to stay. Mm -hmm. And the implication was... 
party a little bit with this liquid cocaine. Probably. That was not your scene, yeah, though. That, that wasn't my scene at all. Seeing Freddie with Richard, Pam knew she'd made the right choice breaking up with Freddie. Drugs, guns, Richard Pryor, the whole situation screamed danger. And Pam was about to find out just how dangerous. Pam and Freddie talked occasionally, but they drifted apart. Freddie had gotten married. He had a baby son, Freddie Prince Jr. Then one day, Pam's agent phoned with a message from Freddie. He wanted Pam to call. I called him back on the number, and it was at a hotel in um, Westwood. When Freddie picked up, Pam knew something was wrong. Freddie had battled depression for years. On the phone, he sounded distraught, and he immediately asked for money. Hola, Poppy, what's going on? Um, I'm really in a bad way, and I need $200, and I don't have any money. <laughs> but I'm in a hotel, okay, and I don't know who my friends are. I don't know where anybody is. I found you, and I need $200. Freddie didn't say why he needed the money. He was still a rich man, thanks to his sitcom, Chico and the Man. Pam was worried that he wanted the cash for drugs. The next thing he said was chilling. I feel alone, and, and I have a gun, and I'm, I'm probably going to shoot myself. And I was like, <sighs> I can get the money delivered to you, but I really think you need to find a male friend to come over and take the gun away from you, feed you, bathe you, get you to bed. Not a woman, not me. But I'll make sure you get the money. And when you get this cleaned up and get the gun away, your friend's with you and you've eaten, you feel a lot better and you want to talk. You know, we can talk on the phone. If you have want someone to talk to, I can listen. He said, okay, mommy, I'd like that. I hung up. Pam and Freddie never spoke again. Three days later, she heard the news. Freddie Prinze, star of television's Chico and the Man, shot himself early today at his Hollywood hotel suite. The 22-year-old Prinze reported... I heard on the news and people were calling me, like constant, you know, Pam, Pam, Pam. Pam was staying with friends just a few blocks away from the hotel in Westwood. I left the house. I was barefoot running down the street to the hotel. I didn't know when it had happened, but when I got there, I could see that they were still there investigating to see if there was a crime scene or something going on. I just fell to my knees and I just started crying. And I just looked up and I was watching from my knees, just sobbing, going, you know, I, I didn't see them take him out. I just saw the activity and the, the yellow tape and people moving back and forth. And it was his room. Freddie was rushed to the UCLA Medical Center, where he was put on life support. He died 33 hours later, at 1 p.m., on January 29, 1977. I mean, you shouldn't, but do you feel any guilt about not going over there three days earlier? No. Mm -mm. And so I've learned about people who are depressed and domestic violence and relationships and how it's the most dangerous situation. It's when someone has a gun. 
Freddie Prinze, the co-star of Chico and the Man, was buried today in Beverly Hills. Prince is survived by his parents, a baby son, and his 26-year-old estranged wife, Catherine. More than a thousand friends and fans came to the funeral, including Shirley MacLaine, Tony Orlando, and Lucille Ball. Lucy hated funerals, and she didn't know Freddie personally. She came out of respect for his talent. Pam did not go. She was afraid of confronting some of Freddie's friends, friends she thought should have helped him. The next day, Pam went to Forest Lawn Cemetery by herself. She brought a bouquet of white stargazer lilies, and she laid them on Freddie's grave. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Pam finds love again. It really is a difference between white women and black women. And I've dated both. Yes, I have. And she struggles with the toughest role of her career. Uh, I'd had nightmares for a while. Graphic scenes that I saw in my preparation, they, they haunt you. If you are in a crisis or need support, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741-741. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yako Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Special thanks to Bruce Shapiro at Columbia University's Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.